5. The Real Thing, a Christian Passover Feast The Lord Jesus Christ is the true Passover sacrifice, of which the Jewish Paschal Lamb was the type. The Last Supper that Jesus celebrated with his disciples was the culmination of the Jewish Passover, since Christ is the antitype to which the Jewish type pointed. Just as the Jewish Passover pointed forward to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, so the Christian Passover, the Lord's Supper, points back to the sacrifice that Christ made once and for all time. The true celebration of the Passover, therefore, passed from the Jewish rite to the Christian rite, that is, the Lord's Supper, the Christian Church's celebration of the salvation that Christ accomplished for his people by his life, death and resurrection. The model for the latter, the Lord's Supper, is the Last Supper, which was the last Jewish Passover and the first Christian Passover. Our Eucharist, or Lord's Supper, celebrates this salvation by pointing back to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the true Paschal sacrifice. The Lord's Supper, or Communion, or Eucharist, is therefore the Christian Passover celebration. But the first Christian Passover gives us, in fact, a very different model of what should happen at the Communion service. Indeed, a radically different model from anything I have experienced at the Eucharists or Communion services of most churches. In the original Passover service, we have a meal, the archetypal fellowship situation. People are talking to each other, discussing their situation and the meaning of the events of which they are a part. Jesus is speaking to them about the same events. They ask him questions and he teaches them. They eat a meal together. When Jesus breaks the bread and says, This is my body, he does it in this context. The Jewish Passover, on which the Christian Passover is based, is a shared meal, not a service of the type we are accustomed to in church today. The Eucharistic practice of the church today is a ritual designed by clergymen for clergymen, not a fellowship meal designed to equip the saints for service. Ephesians 4.12 The church has signally failed to appreciate the importance of the shared meal in Scripture. As a result, the quality of church life has suffered significantly. This emphasis on the mundane act of eating shows how, in Scripture, there is no sacred secular dichotomy. All of life is religious. Eating a meal together should be just as much a spiritual activity as praising God by singing a hymn. Indeed, in Scripture, sharing a meal together has a far greater significance and importance than singing of any kind. Many, however, cannot conceive how such a mundane activity as eating can be spiritual. But it is. Not only can eating be a supremely spiritual activity when thanks are given to God, it is part of one of the most important rituals in the life of the institutional church. Men cannot do anything more spiritual than eating together with others when their attitude is right. But when did your church last eat together as a church? I don't mean when did you last ingest a 5mm cube of bread, or perhaps it was a stale wafer with the exciting taste of cardboard and a sip of wine in church. Nor do I mean when did your church last have a social occasion that some members of the church attended. I mean, when did the church last have a meal in the context of a service, or rather, a worship service in the context of a shared meal, which is what the Christian Passover is. The importance of communal eating fellowship around the Lord's table has been missed by the church. This is because Christians spend too much time in church doing the things that the Bible does not require and too little doing those things it does require. We need to take seriously the importance of fellowship and eating together in the Bible. Eating together is inherently fellowship oriented. 
That's why people go out for a meal together or have people round to their homes for a meal. And that is why Christ has made eating together the context of one of the most important rituals in the life of his church. Because the church has failed to listen to the Bible at this point, she has seriously underestimated the importance of fellowship and has substituted singing, ritual and the spiritual mood for true fellowship. This failure has blighted the life of the church. In the first Christian Passover, as with the Jewish Passover, fellowship together in the context of a social meal was a vitally important element. It is in the context of fellowship that the Lord's Supper finds its meaning And this is why the shared meal is so important. To strip away the fellowship is to strip away at least half of the meaning of the rite. Yet, this is precisely what the church has done by instituting clergy-designed communion services instead of communion services based on Christ's design. Some reassertion of balance is called for in our corporate worship. The first Christian Passover, communion, gives us much food for thought. First, As mentioned already, the context of the communion should be fellowship over a shared meal, not a clergy-oriented performance. Fellowship is not an afterthought. It is at the heart of the rite. Indeed, it is the entire context. This means that talking, discussion, interaction, communication is essential, just as teaching is essential. This is why a meal is so important in Scripture and should be to us. Breaking bed together does not mean having a communion service in the modern sense, where everyone remains quiet and isolated from each other, maintaining their own personal piety or spiritual mood. It means, on the contrary, having fellowship, having a meal together. This is so important to the practice of the Christian faith that the Lord Jesus Christ made the remembrance and celebration of the salvation he accomplished for his followers part of a shared fellowship meal. We celebrate our deliverance from sin around his table at a feast This is what the scripture teaches about the Lord's Supper. Second, singing hymns and choruses is not stressed in the Bible as an important part of the Lord's Supper, though music and singing are stressed in other contexts. In fact, at the first Christian Passover, it is singing that has the place of an afterthought at the end of the meal. And when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives, Matthew 26.30, Mark 14.26. Please observe the emphasized word. They sang an hymn at the end. No mention of getting into the right mood and all that. They sang an hymn at the end. In other words, at the first Christian Passover, singing at the place that coffee after the service has in most of our churches today. It seems the clergy-designed communion service with its emphasis on spirituality has got a number of its priorities upside down here. Third, in the early church, this emphasis, that is, the biblical emphasis on the context of the Lord's Supper, continued after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The Lord's Supper of the early church was celebrated in the context of the Agape Feast. See Jude 12. This was the antithesis of what happens in church today. Communion is a feast at the Lord's table, a communal celebration of Christ's victory over sin and death and of our deliverance from the same. Without this feast around the Lord's table, communion loses much of its significance and resembles a funeral service more than a feast of celebration. Fourth, at Corinth, the New Testament's archetype of what can go wrong in the life of the church, the Agape feasts were being abused. That is, the members of the church, the body of Christ, were abusing each other. They turned the Agape feast into drunken revelry and disregarded each other, thinking only of themselves. 
1 Corinthians 11, 20 and following. The pagan religious background of the Corinthian culture may have had an influence in this. The cult of Dionysius, the Roman Bacchus, was celebrated at wild riotous festivals in ancient Greece. In doing this, they failed to discern the body, that is, they failed to appreciate that in treating each other in that way, they were abusing Christ himself. Matthew 25, 40 and 45. Paul dealt with this by applying some discipline to their gatherings. He tells them to eat at home, thereby separating the agape feast from the covenant signs of bread and wine and putting a stop to the former. Why? Because of the abuse. He did this in order to restore order and compassion in their meetings, which had become a disgrace and abusive. He did not do it to establish a new paradigm for the church universal to follow, and there is no hint of such in 1 Corinthians 11, 20-34. This was a disciplinary measure. The New Testament does not institute this disciplinary measure as a new practice to be followed by the whole church. If we read the New Testament in context, we should see this more clearly. Paul does not lay down a disciplinary measure intended for one church as a paradigm to be followed in churches where such abuse was not present. If such an interpretation were valid, we should have to conclude logically excommunication, a disciplinary measure for those who have apostatized, should also be practiced as a matter of course in all church services, regardless of whether there is apostasy. Such reasoning would be absurd. And it is just as absurd to apply Paul's disciplinary measure aimed at an abusive situation in Corinth to all church services, regardless of whether there is any abuse. Excommunication is not part of the normal life of the church. It is a remedy used in extreme cases of apostasy. Likewise, the separation of the agape feast from the covenant signs of bread and wine was an extreme disciplinary measure aimed at a church that had abused the agape feast. The church has now almost universally normalized an extreme disciplinary measure as the abiding practice for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. This means that the Christian Passover has become for many primarily a means of discipline. Indeed, some churches and clergymen will argue that the Eucharist is primarily a means of discipline, which really means, if the matter is to be stated honestly, that it is a means of maintaining their own power and authority. And of course we have the problem of restriction, that is, who can come to the Lord's Supper, since despite the fact that all who love the Lord are invited to the table, in most churches children are usually forbidden from partaking. That is, they are automatically excommunicated for being children, and this contrary to the specific command of the Lord Jesus himself. Mark 10.14, Luke 18.16 We observe the Lord's Supper in a disciplinary form, that is, a form designed for a disobedient church that cannot be trusted to practice the faith properly. Now, if our churches are disobedient and abusive when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we need to repent. If not, we need to rehabilitate the normal biblical procedure for the celebration of our deliverance from sin at the Eucharist, the Christian Passover feast. The feast, and therefore the fellowship, should be part of the celebration of our deliverance together around the Lord's table, not an added extra tagged on at the end or after the service is finished. The Eucharist should be the feast. Until we restore this biblical emphasis, I suspect that many of our churches will continue to fall short of being a Christian community, much less a social order, and remain a collection of individuals who attend some of the same church rituals.